G'day, g'day guys. Now before we dive into today's show, I want to let you know that some of you may be aware that over the past eight years, I have built a substantial multifamily real estate portfolio here in the US worth over half a billion dollars. And in that time, my passive investors have received fantastic double digit returns. And now you too can invest directly into my deals for as little as $50,000. So if you're an interested investor, head over to reedgoosens.com to find out more. That's reedgoosens.com. Now back into the show. You know, obviously we have seen an unprecedented move in interest rates. Like we haven't seen this since the 80s and it's to combat inflation. We can get into all that. But how is it affecting us now? Well, the, the problem is you only run into problems in real estate in two situations. I can boil them all down to two. One is you run out of time. And the other is you run out of money, right? So is if, if you bought a little bitty 20 unit building and you got $10 million in the bank, you're not going to lose that building, right? You can buy it 10 times over, right? But if you, maybe you bought it pretty thin and you don't have a lot of cash and all of a sudden your variable interest rate went to 7%, you might bleed out and lose that property. So, that, I mean, that's a risk. The other risk is you know, a lot of people have tried to buy assets at, you know, sub four cap uh, uh, cap rates. And they've used bridge lending for the wrong reasons. Just to, they're kind of treating it like a permanent loan and just using it to get the the deal, and then counting on organic appreciation to get them to a refi. Well, that's gone. Welcome to Investing in the U.S., a podcast for real estate investors, business owners, and aspiring entrepreneurs looking to break into the U.S. market. Join Reid as he interviews go-getters, risk-takers, and the best in the business about their journey towards financial freedom and the sheer joy of creating something from nothing. G'day, g'day, ladies and gentlemen, and welcome to another cracking edition of Investing in the U.S. podcast from Los Angeles. I'm your host, Reed Goosens. Good as always to have you with us on the show. Now, I'm glad that you've all tuned in to learn from my incredible guests, and each and every one of them are the cream of the crop here in the United States when it comes to real estate investing, business investing, and entrepreneurship. Each show, I try and tease out their incredible stories of how they have successfully created their businesses here in the U.S., how they've created financial freedom massive amounts of cash flow and ultimately create extraordinary lives for themselves and their families. Life by design, as I like to say. Hopefully, these guests will inspire all of my cracking listeners, which are you guys, to get off the couch and go and take massive amounts of action. If these guys can do it, so can you. Now, as you know, I'm all about sharing the knowledge with my loyal listeners, which is you guys, and there's absolutely no BS on this show, just straight into the nuts and bolts. Now, if you do like this show, the easiest way to give back is to give us a review on iTunes and you can follow me on Facebook and Twitter by searching at Reed Goosens. You can find the show wherever you podcast on iTunes, SoundCloud, Stitcher, and Google Play, but you can also find these episodes up on my YouTube channel. So head over to reedgoosens.com, click on the video link, and it will take you to the video recordings of these podcasts where you can see my ugly mug, but the beautiful faces of my guests each and every week. All right, enough out of me. Let's get cracking and into today's show.
Today on the show, I have the pleasure of speaking with Chad Sutton. Now, Chad is one of five managing partners at Quattro Capital, which is a multifamily investment firm. He leads the acquisition team, and he's also the host of a great podcast, which I've been on, called the Real Estate Runway Podcast. Now, Chad, like me, is also a recovering engineer, and he spent most of his professional career in corporate America in spaceflight with NASA and then in aircrafts with GE before he found his passion as a real estate investor. Now, Chad is a self-proclaimed old soul, and he's a genuine family guy, passionate about building quality time with his family and a quality lifestyle, but he's also really passionate about building quality communities for his residents. I'm really pumped and excited to have him on the show today to share his incredible insight and knowledge, but enough out of me. Let's get him out here. G'day, Chad. Welcome to the show. How are you doing today, mate? Hey, mate. Good to see you. Thanks for being on the show. That's my best Aussie right there. I hope That's, I did well. <laughs> mate, just keep, don't give up your day job is what they say, you know? <laughs> Trust me, my American accent's shocking. Everyone's like, you've been here for so long, you should have a really good one. It's like, yeah, no, no, no not that great, not that great. Maybe after a few beers, I, I get a little little chirpy, but that's that's about it. So, um, mate, I, the first question I ask on, you know, on the show to all my guests is rewind the clock and tell me how you made your first ever dollar as a kid. You know, you mentioned this in the pre-show and I had to think back like, oh my God, how did I make my first ever dollar as a kid? But, you know, thinking back, I guess I always had a little bit of entrepreneurial spirit. You know, I uh, my, my parents started paying me an allowance to mow the yard. And this was in Austin, Texas, 95 degree heat, 110% humidity, just awful thing to do in the summer. Nobody wanted to do it, right? And so I saw an opportunity. I was like, you know, all these other houses on the block, nobody's mowing their yard and they, they hate doing it. They get up early on a Saturday and do it. So I was like, well, I'll do it for you for 10 bucks. Right. And so it's back in the back in the day, 10 bucks went a long way. And I really wanted a Nintendo 64. You remember that thing? <laughs> yes, I like, do. Like Donkey Kong 64. Mm -hmm. You had the expansion pack. I, I wanted that system. And so I, I set out to make $120 because that's what I needed with tax to buy the system at the time. <laughs> and I started mowing yards for 10 bucks a pop. You know, then these, these are the little bitty like quarter acre yards. So it wasn't very much, but you know, uh, thinking back, I guess that was my first business venture. It turned out pretty well. I did get my N64 and then subsequently lost it because I broke the rules and mom grounded me. So <laughs> is what it is, but here we go. <laughs> Donkey Kong, what was the other one back in the day? Uh, I remember when PlayStation came out, um, Crash Bandicoot was another big one Yeah, um, around, yeah. That, around that time. We're probably the same age, but yeah, we're in, we're in the sort of what, mid-90s mid when all that sort yeah. of stuff really Somewhere, started Something like that. And, and yeah. I remember, you know, I, I think I purchased, the, I got the Donkey Kong game, but then I bought 007 had a game mm -hmm. out at the time goldeneye i think it yes, was yes and, yes, yes. and i remember like when you know blood would come down the screen when you yeah, yeah. anyway it was, it was kind of like cryptic and old but my mother didn't like that and so it was subsequently taken away until i was like five <laughs> years older so anyway that's my childhood <laughs> that's awesome that's awesome but i mentioned in the uh, intro you're you're a recovering structural you're not structural engineer, you're a recovering engineer like i am i'm a structural right. engineer talk to me about that path, because we have a lot of engineers on the show who come into real estate. So, so to walk us through your corporate world and life, and then how you you, you stumbled across wanting to be an, uh, an entrepreneur and, and and a real estate investor. Yeah, you know, it, it's a it's a pretty short story. I think that we can we can go through relatively quickly. But I, I I've always I was always taught at a young age that hey, you have nice things if you want them, you're going to have to work for them and and get on a good path to get a good job and get them. So I did. I was always good at playing Legos and connects and all that. And so the world told me I needed to be an engineer. I went and got an engineering degree. I got two actually. Right. Wow. And you know, and uh, and that led to first a job at NASA working on the space shuttle and what used to be called uh, the the um, 
Constellation program. It is now basically the SpaceX Falcon 9 rocket. So it was sold to them and they developed it and made it awesome, right? So um, it had a lot of fun doing, like making things go boom. I worked in combustion. I was a mechanical engineer designing parts that make things go boom. That, you know, when uh, when the space shuttle ceased to be a project in our last economic downturn, you know, I, I went into the private sector and I worked for, you know, companies like General Electric designing aircraft engines and and really enjoyed that until I looked around one day. I was probably, you know, four or five aircraft engine designs in a lot of the commercial airlines you'd be flying around on today. And I said, I looked to my left and I saw my principal engineer and I looked to my right and I saw my senior engineer. I was like, oh my God, there are three companies in the world that do this. I work for one of them. And those two guys are me in the next 30 years. I'm going to be doing this. I'll just be very, very good at it, you know? And that didn't sit well with me. You know, I, I didn't like being pigeonholed, if you will. I didn't like the city I lived in. And, there, you know, aviation is not in the most pretty parts of the country. <laughs> Um, so that was kind of an eye opener. And then the straw that broke the camel's back was I designed a piece of technology that quite literally put the, this engine into a billion, you know, a billion dollar, multi-billion dollar market. And I got like a thousand bucks and an attaboy out of it. You know, I'm like, what? So that, Mm -hmm. that was kind of when the light bulb went off of, okay, I'm worth more than what I'm ever going to be paid ever. Right. Like the, the idea of the labor market is you will be paid commensurate with how hard it is to replace you and only enough to keep you from leaving. Right. Mm-hmm. So that, that light bulb went off. Well, so I started to despecialize. And at this time, you remember when GE used to be a great dividend paying stock and like was 50 bucks a share and stuff. And then it went to like four. Remember that? Mm-hmm. Um, they, I, I was plucked for an interesting opportunity to kind of be an, an internal McKinsey and Deloitte or KPMG, like an internal consultant for GE. And my entire job for like three years of my life was to literally hop on a plane for two weeks at a time and go to every GE site in the entire world, uh, like Europe, Scandinavia, China. You know, I mean, it was it was amazing. And my whole job was to increase, uh, uh, you know, the bottom line, like by reducing variable cost productivity and, and, and manufacturing. So that that was a rapid, rapid, rapid crash course in economics, business, you know, profit and loss management, all the things we do as operators. Right. And that eventually led to a, a global supply chain executive role. So I was, you know, pre 30 and, and an executive with Fortune 100 company in the world or Fortune 50. I don't know what they are now. They've, cut, they've been cut up so many times. But, um, you know, great experience, great background. But meanwhile, a parallel path was forming. You know, I'm actually a third generation investor that was unbeknownst to me until I was in my Mm. mid 20s. But my grandparents owned a lot of single family real estate. And if you've ever watched the show Fixer Upper, Chip and Joanna Gaines, uh, my grandparents used to live around the corner from Chip Gaines when they bought their first flip way back in the day. He's always been as goofy in person as he is in real life, by the way. (laughs) I knew him when I was like three. And anyway, so all of the properties in Waco, Texas, you know, their attraction to the market made everything do really well, as well as operations. So that was kind of the the, the family business. Well, granddaddy passed away, right? Uh, we called him T-Top. That's another story we can tell at the end if there's time. But T-Top passes away and my now business partner and aunt, Kim, takes over the business. Well, this is around the time I'm asking questions and reading books like Rich Dad, Poor Dad and figuring out how do you make money? Because it's not sitting at a desk, right? And um, fast forward a little bit, you know, now we have a business that, that, that you know, I'm learning, she's learning. So we're kind of talking about it. Well, then we go study other asset classes and discover 
the scalability of commercial real estate. And then further, you know, with supply and demand metrics at the time, apartments and and unit-based mobile home parks and stuff like that really made sense. Started buying some of that with with our own money. Then eventually people wanted to be part of it. So we started learning how, okay, well, how do you syndicate? And so we figured that out and it's just scaled from there. And, you know, it, it was actually, I, I had parallel path careers until about 2020 when I saw COVID coming from China because I was in supply chain, right? And so I, I watched it hop from China, you know, over to India, over to Europe, over to Scandinavia. And I was actually on one of the last flights out of Barcelona before the country shut down, right? Wow. So that would have been a fun conversation for my wife. Hey, I'm going to be here for a few few months. <laughs> and so it, it was in 2020 where I finally had to make a call because supply chain became a 20-hour-a-day job you know, trying to figure out how to ship parts and in, in the shutdown of the economy for the first time since Noah's Ark. And um, beyond that, uh, real estate also was taking a lot of time as we're trying to figure out, are people going to pay rent? What new regulations do we need to have? What's the cleaning standards? Like, what do we do? And so, you know, this was the point in my life where I hadn't quite replaced <clears throat> the, the full salary. I, I definitely had a lot higher net worth, you know, but you know how real estate can be. You can be real estate rich and cash poor in the beginning. And uh, but I knew I would land on my feet. And I, I went to my, you know, my supervisor at the time, who was a senior executive and said, look, I know I know GE's about to tighten the belt and, and cut rope with some people. I'm worth like three jobs. Just let me leave. Give me a severance package. I walked out the door, never looked back. And then since then, the business has scaled like 10x. So it's yeah. like once you start focusing on the right thing mm -hmm. and just take the leap. And so that that's how I got to where I am today. And that was the initial career path that got me there. I don't regret any of it. You know, it made me who I am today, but I'm thankful that I found this this uh, entrepreneurial world and and further hard assets to back it. So love it. How close were you becoming to becoming an astronaut? Because I know a lot of going to NASA, engineering degree, mechanical. You you like you doing one or two. You, look, not not trying to. An astronaut yeah, is yeah, a yeah. very very glorified space mechanic. <laughs> well, true, true. <laughs> You know, I, I'm not going to lie if I didn't try or like think I could do it. But yeah. the problem is I also before that, I wanted to become a pilot. Mm -hmm. And it was that my inability to become a pilot that sent me to engineering school to design mm -hmm. them. The problem is I have an ear, uh, an ear tube that didn't close up. And so my ears don't pressurize and my vision is not perfect. Mm -hmm. And so the chances of me becoming a pilot went out the window, which means my astronaut chances were even lower. So <laughs> just, despite the fact that I fit the little size window and I, and I have the degree, I, I don't yeah. have the physical impeccable, you know, yeah, uh, yeah. perfection to do that. <laughs> I, I had to ask, it was the third, first thing, NASA, mechanical engineer, you're like, you, you're either going left or you're going right. You know what I mean? Yeah. So it's, yeah, uh, yeah, that, yeah. That, that's awesome. So I have met a lot of astronauts, but that's a different story. <laughs> right, right. Now, so now let's talk about Quattro Capital and what you built because you mentioned, and I think I've been on stage with Kim at IMN in Dallas. I you believe were, I was, that's right. I, yeah. I, was, I was the, I, I co-host or no, I hosted a panel at the IMN recently. How's it been? You know, maybe tell us how, how many what you got today, AUM. But also, how's it been like with a family member? That, that that's a you're probably one of the first people on the show to build a a, a real estate investment company. Maybe I just didn't ever ask, but a lot of the guys that come on like find a friend or a partner, you know, through meetup groups or whatever. But 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 your aunt, how, how's that how's that going? You know, and, and I have to disclose, uh, my mother, her sister, is a third of the five partners in, in Quattro Capital. So there are there are five managing partners. We have a lot of you know people that work with us and alliance partners as well. But the the core five are are three of them are family. You know, myself, wow. my mother, and her sister, my aunt. Mm -hmm. Well, 
it, you know, I'm not going to lie if I say we we probably still fight like children. I mean, you, we, we, we love each other dearly. We care a lot about each other. The best part about working with family when you're working with the right family members is, I mean, there's a lot of money flying around in this business. There's a lot of trust. Like this is the kind of family relationship where we know, like no matter what happens, none of us would ever do anything to harm any of the other members. Like the integrity is there. And so that that really helped a lot in the beginning when we didn't have our systems and processes really tight and we just had to trust a lot. Now now we're auditable, which is different. But um, you know, it, it's it's really been good and it's been you know, Kim and I didn't know each other very well in my early life because you know, I, I she was a corporate awesome like doing billion dollar deals with IBM and stuff like that when they were building data centers. So she was always gone. Uh, I then moved to Tennessee out of Texas where she was living. And so I didn't see her, but once a year, you know, we always had a good relationship, but I never knew her very well. So since we've started this business, I've gotten to know her as a person, found out we actually get along really, really well. And we challenge each other a lot, which is fun. Uh, And I had to learn to work with my mother who is, who is, you know, incredibly intelligent, but you have to learn how to um, put that mother son relationship to the side and work Mm -hmm. as equals, you know? Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And so it's been really good though. I mean, you know, we have built an incredibly strong company. We have aces in their places. Uh, Everyone does what they're good at. And, you know, every now and then you see the claws come out when we step on each other's toes, but it's, (laughs) it's all in good, good fun and love. Right. So it's uh, I love the, the family dynamic in the business. And what are you primarily buying? Is it all multifamily today? You mentioned mobile home parks earlier. I don't know if that is one of the asset classes you're also focused on. Yeah, so we we really like unit-based real estate. So uh, we have not really come up with any self-storage buildings to date where, you know, we could. We just haven't really found one that makes sense. We buy majority, uh, you know, scattered site multifamily or traditional, you know, garden-style multifamily. Uh, so that's the the bulk of our portfolio. But, there, you know, amongst the partners, there's also some mobile home park type stuff. And, you know, we just bought a piece of land in Texas that we're going to develop into tiny homes, actually, that does have some mobile home park component on it. So, uh, you know, I, I really the, the, what we're after is we're just not quite square footage based people. You know, like even if you get into multi-tenant, that's great. Uh, we just really like the short-term nature of the leases, the, the fact that I've got 100 little bitty income streams and not one big one or even seven on a building. Um, it just really has been what we've gravitated to. And, and we we believe in the basic needs of humanity and shelter is one of them, right? Yep. So. Yep. I completely agree. Tell me how you're working through the current climate of buying in today's world. We spoke a little bit in the green room before we press record here. But what are you? What's your what's your outlook? Maybe maybe take us back and to last year. What were you what were you hunting for? Have you have you bought anything recently? And, and you know how things changed for you as a, as an operational team mm-hmm. from buying to operating to to selling. You know what's interesting about that question is you have to ask yourself two questions, right? There, there's the macroeconomic environment that you exist in, you know, which which drives your capital markets, which drives your capital stack, and that's that's the aggregation of money you're going to use to buy a thing, whether it's your money, an investor's money, you know, a bridge lender, a Fannie Mae, like whoever you use, you have to assemble this perfect little capital stack to buy your deal. And then you have to ask yourself, well, what's the health of the real estate market? And so let me answer the the latter first. We are, yes, we're feeling interest rate increases, but if we put the capital side to the side for a minute, rents are still growing you know, at record levels, even if they flatten out, you know, we're still going to be in good shape for a time to come uh, through this recession. So I think that the the piece of real estate we're buying 
you know, as long as you're buying in, in areas that have the right economic indicators, you know, population growth, job growth, the basic stuff, you're going to do well uh, as far as moving the income line. That's what we do as value add operators. We try to keep expenses or shrink them, which is usually a little bit of the value add, but mostly it is increasing the income line. That proc that prospectus is not no different than I saw a year ago, right? And in fact, it's worse. I mean, now that you have now that you, it's a delicate balance here, but now that you have interest rates, that I think they just peaked at 7% as of this recording yesterday for home mortgages, mm-hmm. people are more priced out than ever. Building is is even slowing down. It needs to be speeding up. We need to be building more homes. We're building less, you know? And so the supply and demand imbalance for rental housing, I think we're in, we're in an area where we're going to see rent growth and occupancy for a long time to come, especially with inflation where, you know, we have a saying in Texas, shit rolls downhill, right? <laughs> if, if you increase my taxes, you increase my insurance costs, you increase my cost of lumber, you increase my cost of appliances, guess who's ultimately going to pay that, right? As long as you're in an area where, where incomes are rising, that is going to roll downhill to the consumer and that consumer is the resident. So the health of the market, I think, is very good. Now, let's talk about the capital side. The capital side is, you know, obviously we have seen an unprecedented move in interest rates. Like we haven't seen this since the 80s and it's to combat inflation. We can get into all that. But how is it affecting us now? Well, the, the problem is you only run into problems in real estate in two situations. I can boil them all down to two. One is you run out of time and the other is you run out of money. Right. So is if if you bought a little bitty 20 unit building and you got $10 million in the bank, you're not going to lose that building. Right. You can buy it 10 times over. Right. But if you maybe you bought it pretty thin and you don't have a lot of cash and all of a sudden your variable interest rate went to 7%, you might bleed out and lose that property. So, that, I mean, that's a risk. The other risk is you know, a lot of people have tried to buy assets at, you know, sub four cap in, uh, uh, cap rates. And they've used bridge lending for the wrong reasons. Just to, they're kind of treating it like a permanent loan and just using it to get the the deal, and then counting on organic appreciation to get them to a refi. Well, that's gone, at least for the immediate future. And those of you who may not have bought an adequate rate cap and may have a loan coming due in the next you know two years, look out because that's going to be the challenge, and that's where you're going to see some correction in prices. So again, I don't see. I see supply of deals starting to pull back because you have people who made good debt decisions. Like, I don't have to sell right now. Why would I sell in a situation where nobody can get a loan to buy this thing? I might try, but you know, if they don't get the the, the bid ask is so far out of whack, doesn't matter. They just won't sell. The ones that are going to be trading in the next 18 to 24 months are the ones who have to trade because they're out of time or they're out of money. And so that's what we're looking for right now. You know, our, our, we are not buying things at, at super aggressive cap rates. We're not running after deals right now because money is no longer free, right? Money has, I mean, if in, when, when inflation was two, three, four percent and, you know, your interest rates were effectively two or three, that's, that's, you know, that's free money. Like I was using as much of that as I could. And locking that up. But now money is, you know, depending on, on short rates, it's six, seven, eight percent, long rates at six percent. And so, you know, with inflation being right around there, money's about equal now. And you have to really be careful because now you got to be prepared to hold things for five, six, seven, ten years. You may not be selling things in two years because you got organic cap rate compression plus a little goodness on your operations. You may really be having to hold for that five-year business plan. And so if you're investing, plan on that, focus on cash flow, because that is going to be what gets you through that time, the ability to cash flow over whatever this environment is that we're in. 
So anyway, that, that's how I'm thinking about yep. things today, but there's probably plenty of directions we can go from there. No, it's, I think it's it's exactly correct. We're, we're, we, the first thing, my I mean, my opinion, and I've, I've been operate, I've been transactional this year. Um, you know, I have bought a deal uh, with 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 a variable interest rate at the beginning of the year. We you know, probably I bought a rate cap on it, which is good, but. Um, I then now have completely switched to fixed rate interest. Interest, right? I think there's still deals out there to be to be had, yeah. and I think the price per pound that you're I'm seeing deals trade at or starting to be BOV'd at is very attractive. And I think if you can get the debt to work, which is the hardest part, right? Because you probably got you're going in cap rates are still around a four four and a half, and you've got debt at six and a half seven. That's going to be your 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 your, your hard spot. But what I'm also seeing is that. Back to your point, we have seen we haven't seen this unprecedented interest rate rise fourfold. Beginning of the year was zero. Now we're going to be approaching four percent by the end of the year. So it's fourfold. In the seventies, I think it doubled. It went from eleven percent to twenty-two percent. Right. So we've we've nearly doubled what we did in the past in terms of how quickly we've 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 shifted. Yeah. Yeah. Even though the historically people will say we're low, but you have to also. What's the the growth, which is four hundred percent? That's what I'm more, more more talking about. But that growth has gone quicker than what people can get your business plan to work on, and that's what I we mentioned in the green room before we press record. Is like I think people are going to start to get come into trouble because your business your business plan isn't keeping up with the rate in which mortgages uh, or interest rate is going. And if you haven't got a rate cap or you didn't plan to hit your rate cap until next year or whenever it was, you're going to start be squeezed with the mortgage, with your interest rate because higher interest rates means less cash flow. What does that mean? Less distributions to investors and you'd less DCRs and then you know, your banks will start come breathing down your neck, the whole, the whole kit and caboodle. So I think there's a big storm brewing here um, and we've all got to be you know, buying correctly today, but how, how have you bought in the past is going to affect how you're going to exit some of these deals into the future. Yeah. So with that being said, what are you thinking in terms of what are you trying to buy today? Are you trying to get, and with that same question, what debt are you trying to assume when you're underwriting that deal? Yeah, that's a good question. And so, you know, where I was, even even just December last year, we bought a pretty big deal in Evansville, Indiana, very landlord-friendly state, by the way. And at that time, you know, SOFR was zero. And bridge money was probably, uh, you know, what, uh, 300 spread, something like that. So it's like we had a 4% floating rate. We bought a rate cap at like 1.5%. We saw some tea leaves, you know, of what was coming. Didn't know it would be this this magnitude, but we saw it coming. But we wanted to kind of fix our rate. And and we were putting three-year terms with two one-year extensions on there. So I was effectively still giving myself a five-year term. You don't want to run out of time, right? Mm-hmm. Today, I'm really – and I think to your point – Bridge money is very expensive. And for the most part, it's it's no longer the most competitive thing to use. Uh, so we are we're sizing everything like underwriting just got a lot easier. We're sizing everything for fixed rates to your point, And we're actually looking at fixed rate, low leverage somewhere around like 55 to 60 percent, not only because that's all it will service. But because, you know, most of these these programs that you put on a, a you know, 10, the non-floating programs that you put on a, you know, a 5, 7, 10, 12-year deal, they will allow a supplemental mortgage later. And so the best thing that you can do is, okay, well, I, I don't want to have full leverage at 70 or at 7% interest or 6% interest. Try to Try to get your equity okay with... Okay, let's let's go in with lower leverage. Let's leave some room for us to do the value add. Let's capitalize in cash. 
And then let's go do the value add. And then guess what? You're going to be open for a supplemental later at, you know, five, four, whatever percentage that we're at. So your net interest rate will come down when you blend that together. And so that, and, and between agencies and, and bank debt, that's what we're looking at. But we're also ve- being very careful about the asset type that we buy. We have, we have effectively offloaded all of our lower quality C-class product with, you know, I'm, I'm Sorry to say it this way, but there are certain resident groups in, in in the country that will be affected the hardest, you know, when when the belt starts to tighten, the, the expendable laborers, right? And further, we've been pushing class C interest or uh, class C rental rates for what, 10 years now? Some of those people are already at 40% rent to income ratio. They can't afford a value play, right? Mm-hmm. So we are really focusing on post-1980, 1985 build, uh, you know, but maybe pre-2010. And really trying to find that that mixture of renter by necessity, renter by choice group that is also in an area that's willing to, if we were to create a superior product, start to compete with that A-class product, but at a lower level. So we're, we're really in that hyper niche. It's a good resident base to hold, you know, mostly your white collar resident. Uh, for example, they're pandemic resistant. If they had to work from home, they could. You know, and so that that's really the niche of what we're looking for. And I really like to see it, you know, in that that 75 to to 200 unit size, because that, that really gives you good economies of scale. So there, there are still value adds out there to have. You have to be you have to know your numbers. You have to be on top of your construction costs right now. And you really just have to mitigate as much of the the local debt risk as you can and keep your eyes to the horizon because real estate is a long game. There will be pain for about 18 to 24 months. There will be utter pain for a lot of people. But beyond that, you know, once we know where the bottom was, that's the only way you know is you look back over your shoulder and say, there it was. Now we can get back to growing, right? And so we're always buying, but it's got to be the right, use the right strategy at the right part of the, of the cycle. Right? For those of you who are interested in staying up to date with all the latest happenings in my business, or to learn more about passively investing directly into my multifamily value-add deals, then head over to reedgoosens.com and sign up for my monthly newsletter. By signing up, you'll automatically be notified about my new up-and-coming investment opportunities. You'll be able to stay up to date with all the latest real estate news here in the United States and much, much more. So head over to reedgoosens.com and sign up today. Now, back into the show. Yeah, I completely agree. And what is your thoughts on the, um, well, how are you going with your operations versus that, that that rate increase? Because I mentioned that before, a lot of people, you know, getting in deals, getting started, getting the GCs going, it takes a period of time. It doesn't just, you don't just close a deal and all of a sudden you're, you know, two months later, you've, you've renovated 25% of your units. <laughs> so there's, there's the, the interest rates have gone quicker than, than the business plan. Have you seen that in your personal portfolio as well? Oh, sure. And, you know, I think our standard underwriting practice was, you know, we're we're pretty, because you got to think the seller usually, if they're operating well, they're renewing 60 to 90 days out. So your first 60 to 90 days, pretty much already signed, right? Right. Uh, Not always, but pretty much already signed. We're we're in a unique position right now in a deal we're doing in Houston where, you know, the seller has let 15% go vacant for reasons unbeknownst to me. But, um, now we have 50 units we can go after right there, you know? So it is possible to blitz it out of the gate, but that takes turning plans into scope pre-close and being ready to hit the ground running with shovels and hammers, you know, on day one, that's challenging. But usually, you know, you don't really have the opportunity to renew people until month four effectively. And we usually are taking that time 
to get the template right, you know, to, to, uh, re, you know, turn, uh, turn plans into scopes and turn it into action. It really takes a solid quarter coming out of the date gate to get going in general and you can force it, but it, it'll be clunky and then you'll figure it out and hit your stride. <laughs> so, um, there's definitely a point to where you, and I mean, this is just physics of value add your business plan or your, your profit and loss statement will look worse than the sellers until you hit enough units to come out the other side, because you have to induce vacancy. And especially like pretty much 100% of the time, when you take over a building, your taxes go up, your insurance goes up, your interest rates probably at least today is up, you know, and you're, you're going to see some turnover. So like your, your, your net income, your net operating income is going to drop. So you have to be able to withstand that dip and then get to work and come out of that dip. And, you know, on average, I think you come out of that dip around month six, best case scenario. So yeah, you, case you, scenario. so the problem is you have to be able to to withstand that impact year one. And to, to your point, you know, it, it's one thing when you're buying with like a 5% interest rate at a four cap, but when pricing is still at a four cap and interest rates are like six to seven, that is a huge economic uh, uh, headwind when you're trying to come out of that gap. And so that that's really what's driving the bid ask problem. Not that we don't think we can add value to properties anymore, but it, it's, it's how do we get out of the gate safely? And then subsequently, if you're using short-term financing, how do you hit a refi in three years? You know, like how do you project that value? So uh, definitely affects it. Question on the refi. I've never, cardinal rule for me, and this is the way I've operated, I've never, ever underwritten to a refi ever, right? This, this, is, this is going back, I've been doing this for eight, nine years. Now that you're coming in and you're seeing, the only thing that really makes sense to your point is, okay, let's go over, get more equity than what we need. We're only going to get 50 to 60% leverage. And we'll then, we, we're hoping or we're betting on a better interest rate environment in two to three years' time. So, are you now underwriting to a refi in your models, knowing that or betting on the fact that the, the interest rate environment will come back and you get to replace some of your money at, say, instead of you might be paying 7% today, but you're only 50% leveraged. And then in three years' time, you might get it down to 5% or 4, four and change, and you might be able to push it to 65% or 70%. That's, that's a great question. And, you know, honestly, I'm going to start by saying this is a philosophical question. And mm -hmm. I, I have always underwritten to reasonable reality. If that includes a refi, it includes a refi. But let's think about it this way. Um, first of all, a, a wise mentor in the engineering world once told me all models are wrong, but some models are useful. You know, like <laughs> it, it, no matter what you do in life, like if you try to go predict the performance of an airplane, I guarantee you those cowboy pilots are going to run the thing a lot harder than you than you plan. So all models are not correct, but you have to you have to predict things well enough to not break the airplane in mid-flight, right? So the way I think about this is let's talk about tolerance. If I'm manufacturing a part, most people don't know this, but if I say a, a dimension on a part, let's say a wheel or something is 24 inches, if I go make it, I can't make it 24 inches 100% of the time. Some are going to be 25, some are I mean, maybe smaller, some are going to be like, 20, 24.2, some are going to be 23.8. Like there's a tolerance on what you can actually achieve in, in manufacturing. And so let's use another analogy and say, okay, when everything is perfect and you're in a manufacturing shop floor and you're sitting on, you know, an anchored piece of machinery, you can get those tolerances pretty tight because you have certainty. The environment around you is certain. 
Now let's think about making that same part in an earthquake out in the middle of a field, right? Your ground's moving underneath you, the part's moving, your, your tool and your cutter's probably hitting different ways. So you're, you're going to, when the when the environment around you is not controlled and not certain, you have to widen your tolerance band or you're going to scrap more parts, right? So the point is, whatever we underwrite, we look at tolerance bands. And so let, let, let's talk about how we would underwrite a refi. You know, yes, we we would say, okay, I'm doing a bridge loan, so there is a 100% chance at some point in the at the end of that term, I will have to refi the deal, right? So I have to think about that, you know. And so if if let's say we have a three plus one plus one, and we're going to tar uh, we're going to target a refi at the end of year three, but we have our extensions as as back off, right? But so now we have to figure out, okay, if I'm taking let's say 30 million dollars in a bridge loan. I've got to look at, you know, how do lenders who I'm going to refinance to, let's think Fannie, Freddie, HUD, you know, Fannie, Freddie, Jenny, how are they going to look at, uh, you know, my takeout loan? Well, they're going to say, okay, hmm, what is your loan to value? And that's going to be based on a cap rate in the future and your NOI. And then, hmm, what is your debt coverage ratio? And so you, what we have to do is predict what that is going to be based on our future NOIs. Uh, and, and, you know, right now value is not a problem. I mean, most of our stuff looks like 40 or 50% loan to value in the future, depending on, I mean, and you run a cap rate suite, maybe you run something from four to six and you see what happens and, and can you always hit that, that value metric right now you're limited by the debt service coverage ratio. And this is why lenders are backing off on proceeds is they, they, they don't want to assume an aggressive situation at refi. You've got to look at what proceeds you have now. And then look at a point in the future and look at all the rate indications and think about, okay, well, if I if I assume the rates probably aren't going to be three anymore, so maybe their best case four and a half and maybe their worst case six and a half, you know, like what they are today. Okay, well, you start to look at that and figure out in how many cases can I hit a one, two, five debt coverage so I can actually refi the thing out, right? And so that's what drives your decisions. So, you know, we're of the mindset that we, you know, and by the way, none of this is wrong. As long as you make the right decision, so you have, you know, you have a safe deal and you make money, it doesn't matter how you do it. You know, we, we consider what is the reality of how we're structuring the deal today? And then what is the reality likely to look like with some tolerance? And right now that tolerance band is a lot wider than it used to be because the ground is shaking around us, you know? Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. So. No, I think it's poignant that I, I heard a, on a podcast the other day, like we as entrepreneurs, real estate entrepreneurs, we can make money in any environment, right? We just oh, need yeah. to know what the rules are. And back to your ground shaking analogy, the ground's shaking so much, we still don't know what the rules are. Hence, our tolerance bands have got to be bigger. But right. as we start coming through these this these wavy, choppy waters, we will start to see the horizon between the, amongst the clouds, and we will all start to bring that tolerance band in again, and 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 you know, be able to make assumptions that we feel good about. And uh, and goes back to the question of like, do you assume a refi? Well, if you if you believe within your tolerance bands, you you can assume a refi, and it makes sense. And you have the upper limit and the lower limit, and it, it and right. you feel good about that. You feel good about your operations. If you feel good about where you're buying at and where you want to move the needle to, then. The answer is yes. You can you can go yeah, look at a refi. Yeah, so, yeah. I, I completely agree with that as well. I just I know personally I'm looking at deals today and it's just like <clears> okay, so we're coming in at six and yeah. a half. Do we really think is going to be six and a half in three and a half years time? And and what can we push the, the needle to on the NOI? Yeah. So it's all and, that, and that's the thing to think about right here is like you know now that you know and I even said we are looking at fixed rate for things going forward right now. Like right now the tolerance band has gotten so wide that I don't even want to risk it. 
You know, it's right. like uh, I'd rather just say maybe I'm paying a stupid high rate for for you know. But if you get a bank loan for three to five years, okay, maybe I'll pay one percent to get out of it, and I can refi to something better later. But the alternative is if, if I'm not underwriting a wide enough tolerance band, or is so wide that on like half of it the deal works and half of it it doesn't, it's not a safe confidence interval to buy that deal. So you have to figure out how to get your confidence interval safe and mitigate your risk. And right now, I think fixed rate is like if you're starting a deal today. I think fixed rate is probably the way to go. Fixed rate, but I'll also add, you don't want to be, you don't want to be locking in your your fixed rate with a Freddie or Fanny on a term where you have defeasance and that will kill you anyway. Yes, <laughs> that is you worse. Have to, you have to don't be don't be naive. Like yes, fixed rate, but don't then go and fix it for ten years at today's lending environment because then you're stuck. And to get out of it, it's going to cost you an arm and leg. And I've been in that situation. Yes, before. we've all learned that expensive lesson. And let, exactly. let's talk about that for a second, Reed, because sure. the, the the behavior of yield maintenance and defeasance, which are similar but different, the, the yield the behavior of them is that there's an equation, and it's about this long, <laughs> and it's in your loan documents, and you have to have them calculate this for you, or go to defeasewithease.com, and you can it'll it's pretty handy. But anyway, you can calculate this for your deal. But what 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 people don't understand is it's inversely proportional to interest rates. So think about yes. this. If I'm a lender and I'm putting out money at 3%, you know, it, 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 as long as money's still 3%, yeah, my, that defeasance to get out of that loan is super high because you hadn't fulfilled your obligations in, in terms of interest for that investor. But the interest rates are now 6%. If you have something locked in at 3%, and I do, I'm looking at selling it right now, your defeasance is like nothing because they're like, give me that money back so I can deploy it at 6%. But the inverse is also true. So the worst thing you can do is lock a high rate like 6% right now with a 12-year term and defeasance because I, I will tell you with pretty much 100% certainty, by the time we get six to seven years out, rates are going to be lower than today. I mean, I'll be really like, and I've been wrong before, but if history tells us anything about the future, that is certain, right? The question is the near term, not the long term. So what will happen there is, you will lock in at 6% and then rates will be, I mean, let's say they go back to 3%. I don't know. Well, that lender's like, I don't want that money back. Your defeasance just went up because I'm making more money with you. And if you terminate that loan, it's not as good of an investment for me. So you got to think about that as locking high with defeasance is a really dangerous thing and it'll be expensive, you know? So unless you're married to the deal, you know? You completely agree with you, mate. It, because I remember having a deal even back in 2016, if you remember, rates were sort of going up at that point, and we thought we were going to the moon. And we locked at 4.63% on a 10-year, but the business plan was five years, <laughs> right? And this is the naivety of being a newer syndicator. We still have that deal today because if we try to get out of that deal, it's still going to cost us like two, a million and a half to $2 million yeah. uh, to get out. So the other thing you got to look at, is, and this goes back to floating rate, the difference between getting a defeasance, getting out of it in three or four years' time versus what, a, what a, a rate cap is today, you have to look at those two and, and, and evaluate what's the best for your deal or look at a step-down prepay because that's, that's probably the, the best thing yeah. you can do. Um, or if you do really believe that you think rates are going to come down, get a floater, pay the pay the um, the rate cap and just get something that, that is moderately leveraged in order so you can set yourself up for success in two to three years' time. You can, you can jump that hurdle. You can get the DCR at the 1.25 and, and, and replace that uh, the, the, the senior loan that you, you, you close on the deal with. 
That's absolutely right. And I'm, I'm going to give your listeners some some nuggets of how I do this here. Like th- this is something it's very numerical. You can figure this out. You know, does it make sense to buy a rate cap? Does it make sense to float my debt? Does it make sense to lock something and look at future defeasance? You know, so the first thing I gave you, go to defeasewithease.com. And and you can you, you it doesn't have to be a real loan. You can put in parameters and figure out what will that defeasance be at a given time, maybe five years into your business plan. So you can predict based off what things are today, what that would look like, uh, and you can play with the rate and figure out you know like how that defeasance would change. Now rate caps, you can go to pensford.com, p-e-n-s-f-o-r-d, and they have this this great little calculator at the top right called a cap pricer. And they they update it weekly, I think. So it's pretty it's pretty accurate, I found. But you download the spreadsheet, and you'll have to read about the terms a little bit. I'm not going to give you a crash course on that. But you you put in the parameters of the rate cap, and you get a pricing matrix, and you can show you can, there's a little box you can play with the interest rate assumptions, and see how well it pays out. It's effectively an insurance policy, guys. You're just saying if rates are here, I'm only going to pay up to here, and then the policy is going to kick in, right? And so with that, and then knowledge of your interest rate and and interest and loan amount, you can figure out, does it make more sense for me to just hold extra cash and pay the extra interest risk if it happens? Or does it make sense to pay half a million dollars for a rate cap? Does it make sense to to do a step down prepay, which is a very easy way to calculate like a 54321% of loan over five years? or do defeasance. So like this is calculable and I encourage you all to become students of the capital markets because the capital, like I don't, you can be the best operator in the world. If you don't know shit about creating a capital stack, you're, you're going to die. Seriously. Right. Like you, you will not live in this business. So, <laughs> Well, Chad, Matt, I want to, I could talk to you for hours, uh, my friend. Um, but at the, every, at the end of every show, we like to jump into the top five investing tips. You ready to get into it? Let's do it. Mate, question number one is what's the daily habit you practice to keep on track towards your goals? Daily habit that I track. You know, something amazing happens to the body when you just drink water in the morning and don't eat until at least before nine or 10 o'clock. The brain mm. focuses on survival and it's very alert. And I also get a workout in. It's like, that may be 5 a.m., it may be 8 a.m. when I do it. But before I start my day, I make sure I get that workout in and I make sure that I'm fasting until at least mid morning. And you'd be surprised how alert your brain is, how your metabolism increases, and how just like your brain is in a different state of mind. When you have had that that you know that workout and feel that that level of accomplishment, it's kind of like what was the guy who said one of the generals said the first battle of the day is making your bed. It's like mm-hmm. just get a small victory and then you can conquer the world. Love it. How often or how long are you fasting for? Just quickly. Twelve I, hours. I usually so I no not like that long. I'll I'll do a drinkable yogurt or something probiotic thing like in the morning maybe around nine o'clock and I usually don't eat until lunch. I, I don't eat breakfast. I'll eat and I'll, I'll eat probably like a five hundred calorie lunch maybe. And then dinner is my my bigger meal. So I'm, I'm more on on that level of fasting. So yep. not like 12 yep. hours. But. Yep, yep, yep. Got it. Uh, question number two is who's been the most influential person in your career to date? Wow. That is, uh, you know, there there is an individual out of California who he was a big guy with CB Richard Ellis for a long time. Um, I won't speak his name for privacy, but he he's also been a pref equity partner in a lot of my deals. And man, the the knowledge that man has on the market, on deal structure, on on you know operations, like I feel like just just having conversations with him, I get exponentially smarter, right? So just having people like that in my life, and that that would be the main one, it, you know. He it just he's he's an he's an old guy, he's a gray beard. He invests in operators, and he sees something in me for whatever reason, and gives me his time, which is amazing. So like that, I owe a lot to that guy. 
That's awesome. Um, Question number three is what's the most influential tool in your business? And when I say tool, it could be a physical tool like a phone or a journal, or it could be a piece of software that you just can't run the business without. What is it? You know, it's interesting. Um, I'm gonna give. I'm gonna go with a personal productivity tool. So I use a, a, a an email client called Superhuman, and it's it's a new thing that that it's, it's very like keyboard and 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 shortcut based, and it's amazing like how I can customize like my inboxes for context. Like if I'm working on four deals, I need stuff to get in the right spot. It's just it's super flexible, and uh, it really helps me stay on top of things very quickly. And and I'll give you a second one, a bonus one. I use, I love writing things, but I hate paper. I, mm. I bought this little remarkable tablet. Sorry, you mm-hmm. can't really see it mm-hmm. with my blur, yeah, yeah. but I, I bought the remarkable two and it's a real low tech thing. It just, you know, you can write and you can have notebooks and all that in there. I use the thing constantly. Like it, it, when you just need to think or you just need to plan or like you need to have a place to jot notes, it's always there. The battery lasts for like a week, you know? So that like those two, that's a tech tool and, and then a efficiency tool, I would say. Awesome. Awesome stuff. Question number four is in one sentence, what has been the biggest failure in your career? What did you learn from that failure? I'm, I'm trying to think of something that's not going on, you know, in the recent past with something that's that's given a lot. I would say what I said earlier, not understanding capital markets well for when we started doing these larger deals, because we in that whole defeasance discussion we talked about, we made that mistake where we we locked something for too long and we added a lot of value and we had a couple million dollars in equity stuck. It's called dead equity, right? And it's still stuck to this day because I will not pay that defeasance. Even even mm-hmm. today, it, it is, it, it's not a great uh, story to sell it. So anyway, uh, I missed my window there to recapitalize and roll that money. And that was an early deal. So that, you know, my, my refi and roll plan fell on its face for that. So learned a lot from there that you need to know capital markets. <laughs> Mate, we're cut from the same cloth because I made yeah. the same mistake. So um, so awesome stuff. Mate, last question. Where can people reach you to continue the conversation? Lord? In your sphere, where do they go? You know, we are all over Facebook, LinkedIn, and Instagram. Look for Team Quattro Capital, one, all one word, uh, no spaces. And um, if you go to thequattroway.com, that is our website. You'll see our managing partners on there. You'll see our extended team, our podcasts, our deals. Like you can just do all things at that website. So love to, re- love to connect with you. And uh, yeah, always love talking about this stuff. Awesome stuff, my friend. Look, I want to thank you so much for jumping on the show today. Um, Just to repeat some of the things I took away from today's show, I think the number one thing is all models are wrong. Some models are a good guide. And I completely agree with that. Like a model is a snapshot in time and you cannot control time. We don't have a crystal ball. If we could control time, we'd be doing something completely different. It is just the best guess that you can have of where things are going to go. And then the second piece of advice I thought you, you, you spoke really well on today was tolerance bands. So in and around your model, how big are your tolerance bands and where is it going to put point to to make sure you have the best exit and the most successful operations possible for your investors to preserve their downside and to protect their capital. So I think those are the two big takeaways. Um, Did I leave anything out? And is there anything else you want to add before we wrap? No, I think you hit it very well. And and I guess the last piece of parting advice on all models are wrong, submodels are useful. You know, whether you're an operator or you're investing in operators, you're investing in the people driving that model, right? And and so the model is wrong day one, I'll tell you that. The question is how well can like think about a GPS. You know, there's going to be detours and construction. How well can that operator navigate around the map and stay on course as much as they can? Because it will go, something will go wrong in the first week. I promise you, it's just life, right. you know, but that, that's really, that's really the key is how well can you track to plan, not, not emulate plan. I love it. Well, mate, thank you so much for jumping on today's show and enjoy the rest of your week and we'll catch up very, very soon. Thanks, Reed.
Well, there you have another cracking episode jam-packed with some incredible advice from Chad. If you do want to check out Chad, head over to thequattroway.com or just search Team Quattro Capital on LinkedIn or social media and or on Google and you'll be able to find everything they do. Connect with them, get in there, involved in their sphere because they're doing some incredible stuff in and around the space of multifamily and um, mobile home park investing. And this have a good way of philosophy about thinking about what they're doing and how they're executing in today's world. Um, I want to thank you all again for taking some time out of your day to tune in to continue to grow your financial IQ because that's what we're all about here on this show. If you do like this show, the easiest way to give back is to give it a five-star review on iTunes. You can check out all the show notes from today's show up on my website at readgoosens.com. And we're going to do this all again next week. So remember, be bold, be brave, and go give life a crack. Listener.